business is better, period. Hey friends, welcome to the Lachlan 365 podcast. We at the church at Lachlan Springs are lovers of scripture and the way it displays the goodness of our God in Jesus. This podcast is meant to be a resource for those of us who are partaking in the Brentwood Wide 2024 Chronological Reading Plan. Our hope is that as you wade through the waters of scripture, we might be able to help guide and encourage you in this weekly conversation centered around God's word. With all that said, let's dive in and see what God has for us this week. Hello, friends. This is Alec Beard. Are you eating? You're eating cookies right now. <laughs> you brought them. Oh, my word. This is Charlie Lowry, the one with the cookies. And welcome to Lachlan 365. We are super excited to be with you this week. Charlie, I believe that you have an icebreaker question for us. I sure do. You want to know who it came from? Please, yes. Let the world know. (laughs) Big shout out to Kyrie on Instagram. Thank you for being a real one. Kyrie Klopke. Kyrie Klopke hit us with the icebreaker question, and that is, what is your strangest habit? Yeah, I can answer that pretty quick, sadly. Um, I have a unique relationship with toothpicks in, in that it's I... It's a weird way to say this, yeah, Alec. It, it is. I realized that as soon as I said it. I have a certain type of toothpick um, that I always have with me at all times. I've got yep. boxes of them in my car, in my office, in my house. In my bathroom. You've um, also given this habit to my husband. I have proudly pushed this habit <laughs> onto other people. Um, it's a it's a tea, how do I say this? Tea tree, tea tree oil mint infused toothpick, and it's filed very well on one side. Um, it's incredible. I have them everywhere. I I have used. I've had toothpicks in my mouth in a lot of places. I play sports with them in my it's mouth. It's terrifying. Um, I really it wish you wouldn't. It bothers some people, but uh-huh. I really, really, really enjoy my toothpicks. My husband keeps them, like, on the arm of the car inside the interior. You just see them sticking out. Yep. It's, it's a good place. <sighs> what about you? My strangest habit, I don't know how strange this is, but I, I suppose it's unique, and you help me think of this. I am a serial journaler. I have a very specific journal system. Uh, so you like you you journal about like Wheaties, Frosted Flakes, um, <laughs> Captain. Crunch. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Good one. Cereal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. It's it, it's very. It can be described as a habit because it's. I've been doing it since I was four. Like since yeah. I could write. Um, and yeah, I can geek out about it for quite some time. So if you're ever interested yeah. in seeing, yeah, I've seen our journal. journal. It's very like there's sections on sections on sections and there's unique codes and hieroglyphics and, um, all I that write stuff. about all of you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> she's developed her own language. It's yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, well, Charlie, what I want to do to start our time together this morning is, uh, we both actually, when we came in this morning, shared that this was the first week where we both kind of felt some mental fatigue as yep. far as like how we're um, progressing in this reading plan. So yep. I wanted to take a few moments and, and just chat about that. Would you Would you care to start? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, I found hope in the fact that it was very organic that we both happened to bring, like I just walked in and was like, yo, this was the first time, this is the first week, I'm ashamed to say, like I finished it, I've, I've gotten through, but it was difficult. And I was very surprised to, and I was almost triggered, like when that feeling of guilt and shame started coming in that like, Mm. ooh, you're bored. You're not finding joy in this word right now. I felt guilty for that. Sure. And I had to process through it and 
you know, recenter myself and pray. Um, but it, it definitely gave me a vision of like, oh, wow, this is, this is a spiritual war that we wage, even just sitting here in the dark of the morning reading my Bible. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think this week I've really felt that too. And, you know, I've, I've shared with you, Charlie, that for me, one of the reasons it's difficult is that I, I don't find myself a lot right now reading for just the joy of reading. Yeah. Like I'm, you know, approaching a lot of this with this kind of teaching perspective, trying to draw things out so that as we, you know, walk through things here on the podcast or just in conversations or small group or whatever it is, that I've, I've done my reading in a way that allows me to, to teach it yeah. to other people. Yeah. But what that does is that it, you know, oftentimes robs me of just the joy mm-hmm. of being immersed in God's word. And so I've got to I've got to work to find the balance. I think what I probably will do is I probably will start to read in some other places in scripture as well, just to try to mix it up a little bit. Um, Still doing the reading plan, of course, but like, you know, I might mix in some Psalms or some New Testament or whatnot, just to kind of reapproach scripture. And and I think, again, a, a, a lot of the a lot of the ways in which we pursue things like this, we, we tend to, in our brains, place them in a category of a to-do list or like a checklist. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more we operate in that space, the more it becomes really laborious. Yeah. Um, so like if you're listening and you find yourself in this place, I would encourage you to spend some time in reflection and prayer and ask yourself, am I doing this because I think it gets me something? Like am I, am I earning something? Mm-hmm. Or am I doing this simply to be faithful and grow in my understanding of who God is and what he's done. And there may be some things that you can, that you can take before the Lord yeah. and offer up. There's a lot of nuance to it and complexity because it's very much a thing that we should be striving to make a habit sure. of our lives, you know? So it's, it's difficult to find that balance between making something a habit, making something like I would, I would love for myself, for, for me to become someone who habitually turns to scripture when yeah. I'm in need. Like we should, scripture literally tells us to do that, to turn to prayer. Yeah. And in a really, in a unique way, that, that icebreaker question of what's a strange habit. If we, as a people, you know, give ourselves to this over the course of this year and it becomes such a foundational piece of who we are, then, you know, say next year when someone says, Hey, what strange habit do you have? I read my Bible every day. Every day. And honestly, in today's world, that is very strange. And it is a unique way that we can be set apart as God's people. In the midst like, of our, just like we're told we will be. Just like Leviticus. I'm not going to go back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, okay. So, I, like, as we begin this morning, I, I think we need to take a moment, kind of even piggybacking off what we just said, and applaud everybody who's made it this far. So, like, we've, we've made it through some of the biggest portions of Scripture that I think exist. Like, to think that we've already covered three-fifths of the Torah right? and Job is just wild. But I think we, we would... I think we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't actually stop and recognize that. So I just, I want to make sure that we do. We're, we're making it people one day at a time. So we're doing it. give yeah, yourselves a round of applause. Woo! You in the back. You, you in the back. And now <laughs> we're going to keep on chugging with the book of numbers. Now I personally have always found this book to be one of the most challenging, but as, as I've went back and as I've studied it and as I've read through it, it has been wild to see how important this book is for the rest of the Old Testament because it holds in it some stories that, you know, are referenced multiple times. Like even in the New Testament, we've got references to numbers. So mm-hmm. as we start, I think we, again, we have to remind ourselves that none of this is just meant to be information. 
all of it is moving the storyline forward, especially the storyline that we began to trace back in Genesis, which is, you know, seeking to answer that question, what is God going to do to make things right? And we've seen bits and pieces of that already. So I think it's helpful. Let's do a quick recap of, of where we've just been, right? We, we picked up our story after Job. We're in the land of Egypt where you know, Israel's under this intense and brutal slavery at the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. And we saw God redeem them in some really wild ways and lead them out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And there we, we saw God form this covenant with the people. And it was centered around this new identity that he's giving them of a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, all of which was so that God could be with his people and dwell mm-hmm. in their midst. That's right. the big theme. That's the big kind of thread that we're chasing. At one mint. And, you know, we also saw them break that covenant rather quickly uh, with the whole golden calf incident, which was a moment where, you know, it seemed like this whole thing could be over before it even started. Mm-hmm. My, I still, I've, I, think, I can't tell you how many times I've made the the joke about Aaron when Moses is like, what happened? And Aaron's like, I don't know how the calf came out of the fire. It just appeared. I don't know what happened. I'm like, oh my gosh, what a, what a dork. But so like we've learned some really key aspects of who God is. He's, he's holy and completely distinct. He's committed to his people. And ultimately he is full of incredible grace and mercy for them when they fail, Mm -hmm. while also being committed to justice and holding the people accountable. As we will see in these Mm -hmm. numbers as a full (laughs) down. And so like the biggest way that we see this, right, is through the building of the tabernacle, this place where God's presence would dwell, and the establishment of the priests and the sacrifices, which act as these pathways for people to repair and maintain their relationship with a holy God. And all of this action is taking place at the base of Mount Sinai. And all of it's taking place over, you know, about a year, which probably feels a bit confusing. I think for some of us, it could feel way longer because of all the things that we've read. And for others, it may, it may even feel way shorter. But just so we kind of have our bearings, that, that time for Israel at the base of Mount Sinai was about a year. And now, here in Numbers, the, the people are ready to move. They've been given what they need. They've been prepared for many of the things that they're going to encounter. And it's finally time for them to move into the land that God has promised them. So this is a big moment. And so that's where Numbers begins with, you know, Israel's getting ready to get all packed up and make this big journey. Um, I want to make a few notes before we start. One, in the Hebrew tradition, this book is not actually called Numbers, which if you've been paying attention... It's a common name with the themes of the books, like how we've gotten, you know, names to English and whatnot. But in Hebrew, this book is titled In the Wilderness, yeah. which is fitting considering they spent so <laughs> a good time, a uh, good amount of time in the wilderness. So the name actually gives us a bit of glimpse, like into where we're headed, but it also hints that this wilderness idea is going to be a big theme of this book. Um, second thing I think we should note is that this book begins with a census that's being taken of the people, and it actually ends with a census as well. And it also kind of uh, gives us this layout of how they're supposed to set up the camp. And there are probably a few things that we could talk about here, but the most important idea is, is this. The way the layout is described, at the very center of the camp I guess? sits the... Tabernacle. Tabernacle. That's right. And this is important, right? Because it it signifies that the tabernacle and everything that it represents, everything that's going on there 
is the heartbeat of this new people. It is the point where it all connects and it's the foundation of this people's new identity. So the center. Yeah, it's the center of, of where they're at and what they're what they're supposed to be about. Uh, third thing I want to note first is that it's important to remember that Exodus and Numbers are sort of bookends to Leviticus. And this is not just me. <laughs> it may sound like Basically it. everything is a frame to Leviticus. Everything is about Leviticus. <laughs> But it's true. They, they really are. So like much of what happens in this book is picking back up themes that we saw in those other two um, books, and they're expanding on them in really significant ways. And so we have to resist reading this book apart from what we've already read. Remember, this is one unified story. And while we don't really have many narratives within the book of Leviticus, Numbers is full of narrative. Like we've got story after story after story. Mm-hmm which for most of us will probably be a welcome sort of break as far as how things have been reading. Um, But it it may even be helpful for some of us to take notes as we're reading numbers and kind of note the things that feel familiar or may be a callback of some sort so that it can help us make sense of what's happening. So don't don't be afraid to do that. Like, don't be afraid to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. You can do it. It's there. And... If you feel like something is being is a stretch, then that's just a great time to ask questions about it. Sure. Right. And even if you're not sure, like there's no, says the journaler over here. But even if you're not sure, like when in doubt, just write write it out. Write it <laughs> like, out. If, it, if right. it calls attention to you, then I, I have so many notes in here that like I do not know if they're pertinent or if they're relevant to future. I make scripture. a lot of jokes in my notes. If, I if, do too. if I ever die and someone picks this Bible up, they're gonna think <laughs> I'm talking about strange habits. Um, Okay. All that sound good? You have any questions or thoughts before we move on? Let's do this. Great. Okay. So here's the plan for our time right now. Since we've already talked about how, you know, this reading plan often leaves us starting or finishing a book midweek, remember that a lot of these episodes are going to feel pretty general Mm -hmm. because we just can't look at everything. And that breaks my heart. It really does. You're having to leave behind a couple of things in Leviticus here. I'm leaving behind a lot of things. So, like, I'm going to hop around a bit, and I'm going to try to focus on, you know, what I feel are the bigger rocks or bigger moments. But, again, this is just me. Like, I'm not the end-all, be-all of this. So if you have questions that pop up about your reading, and we're not talking about it here, this is just a good reminder. Throw those on the podcast form. We'll do our best to circle back around to them. Do your best to make sure they're related to what's happening in the text, Um because those are the questions that we're really geared towards answering. Mm -hmm. But if you have other questions, feel free to include your name and we'll Mm -hmm. reach out to you individually, which I've already done. And I'm thankful for that. Um, But since numbers is really doing, you know, a lot of legwork here in setting up the book of Deuteronomy, which is going to be a baller time. I cannot wait for that book. We're going to cover as much of the book here today as we can so that next week we can give more attention to Deuteronomy because that's a big one and because we're just reading that fast. Like, it's yeah. we're, we're moving at a breakneck speed <laughs> yeah, is what it feels like. Because we are. We are moving so fast. But let's do this. Let's do it. So the book of Numbers as a whole can be divided into three major sections. Okay. The first one is at Sinai, which is about the first 10-ish chapters. And then we have this journey through the wilderness to a region called Paran. And then the final section is what's called, or you can can look at it as the plains of Moab. It's kind of that final section. Um, Each of these really is geared towards one of three big themes. And, you know, all of these sections have sub-themes, of course, but there there are three kind of big ones that carry throughout the whole story. 
So that first section where we're at Sinai, the, the focus is on the theme of temple. Because again, the tabernacle, like as we just noted, it's at the center of everything that Israel does. And because we don't read books like Leviticus in a vacuum, we, we now have at least a general understanding of why, of what's happening at the tabernacle. So if God is going to dwell with his people, they have to live their lives in the way that he has commanded them to. And if they don't, then there are consequences, which the book of Numbers is really going to tease out for us. Mm-hmm. The second theme that we're going to see a lot of is testing, which honestly makes up the majority of the book. It, and if... Like if you thought the people were annoying in Exodus, just wait until you get to the middle section of this book. They, There's some quotes that are just like, what? They are just, borderline insufferable. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot. But in the midst of all the back and forth, right, between the people and Moses and ultimately the people and God, watch for the ways in which God is testing the faithfulness of the people. There are multiple stories within this book of, you know, different rebellions that are instigated by the people or different leaders within the congregation. And all of it is meant to paint a picture for us of the people's rebellion versus God's faithfulness. If these people are going to be set apart and receive the blessings of the covenant that God has made with them, they have to be faithful. Mm -hmm. They have to walk in obedience. And so a lot of the things that God is calling them to do are in some ways a test of whether or not they're going to remain faithful. Which, which is, I mean, it's just, it mirrors salvation. Yeah, yeah, Faith yeah. Faith is required. And, you know, spoiler alert, they're not. They're not going to be faithful. <laughs> <laughs> so you have those two themes, uh, temple and um, what did I just say? Uh, testing. And then the third one is land, right? So if you rem- if you remember, the promised land, as it's called, goes all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12. And this is this place that God has been preparing Israel for, for so, so long. And they're so close to being in it. But the reality in that is that if the people are going to receive this blessing of the land that God is giving them, then they have to hold up their end of the bargain mm-hmm. through obedience. And so we'll see that God takes the blessing of this land very seriously, and no one gets a hall pass when it comes to being obedient, uh, which is an important theme, which we'll talk about later. So that's sort of our big picture, right? We've got a covenant people who now have a way to dwell in God's presence safely, I might add, who are now ready to receive the blessing of the promised land. But let's take a look at some specific moments um, and dissect them a bit. So in chapters 5 and 6, there there are two things that I think are both significant to this story and our story as well. The first one is in chapter 5 where, you know, God is expanding on some of the rituals and the laws. And I know that most of us are like, wait, I thought we were done with the whole ritual and law thing. Um, But we're not. Never. Never. (laughs) Until Jesus. And here's why. One of the things that we learn about the law as we move forward is that it isn't all-encompassing. It's not meant to be an encyclopedia of every single thing that people will ever do or face, but it is meant to be a guide and an instructor. The the New Testament will use the phrase, it's a tutor of sorts. Hmm. And so, for example, like you'll see an instance where they're celebrating Passover and some men come and they ask Moses a question. And Moses does not say, see see page six of your instruction manual. (laughs) But he does say, um, 
Let me go ask the Lord. Yeah. So that. one of the things that we see really early on is that wisdom goes hand in hand with applying the law to everyday life. It takes understanding the heart behind the law to know how to walk through situations that the law doesn't explicitly comment on. I, I saw in some research done by my incredible research assistant, Mary Beard, um, <laughs> a note on this that has really stuck with me. And it, it was just expanding on this idea of the need for wisdom. But it noted that in these circumstances, the people had to go to Moses to ask for wisdom because he was their mediator. Yeah. He was the middle ground between the people and God. And there always will be one until Jesus. Right. Comes. There is always a mediator. But for us, we have a better mediator than Moses in Jesus. Because right. Jesus, as the Messiah, is both our advocate and high priest. He's the one who has gone before God on our behalf and sent the Spirit of God to dwell within us. And so for us, we have direct access to the wisdom of God's Spirit because of Jesus. It almost becomes more unbelievable the more we study it, like the, the more that that thread line is you know, visible. You know what these? that is, Charlie? That's awe. That's reverence. Yeah, that's exactly what that is. Yeah. And so we have that because of Jesus, which I think is something that, like to your point, we should all praise God for and lean into. Like I, I have found myself at this place where I have seen, I, the more I'm looking at these things, the more I'm like, man, I don't spend near enough time on my face, like in prayer and worship and thankfulness. Yeah. And I know that that's an awkward like picture for a lot of us to picture ourselves like flat, flat on our face. But as we read these stories and God shows up in big ways. And the light of glory is not. Right. And, and you know, every time an angel shows up, yeah. what happens? <laughs> Fall to their People face. People just yeah. end up on their foreheads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, man, we have a better mediator than yeah. Moses and Jesus. And I'm not on my face nearly yeah. enough. Yeah. I'm getting sidetracked here. But okay, back to chapter five. So as God is commenting on this law, he, he establishes a requirement for how to reconcile wrongs among the people. And that is confession. And what's beautiful about this is that like God knows the people can't keep the law perfectly. He knows they need all the help they can get, which again, that's why it's so specific. And as mm. readers, we, we've already seen at different points how when sin goes unchecked, it builds into this sort of downward spiral that destroys everything in its path. That's never changed. <laughs> right. Like, remember that before Abraham, that's the theme that we get in and around humanity. Like, yeah. when we're left to our own devices, we are bent on death and destruction. Self-destruct. Not peace in life. Yeah. Destruction. And so God is intentionally stepping in right here in Numbers, and he's providing a way for the people to break that cycle before it even begins. And the way that he does that is by saying, when you act unfaithfully to the Lord or one another, you are to confess your sin. And so I think it's worth noting that this, this new identity that God has given this people is one that is built around not just avoiding sin at all costs, but repentance and confession when sin inevitably occurs. That's a really good distinction because there's a difference between pretending sin's not there, like hmm. pretending, because I, I hear this a lot when we there's discussion of sin has no power over me, therefore I can pretend it's not there. That's not what that means. Mm. <laughs> Acknowledgement of sin and con is it requires confession. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I think that one of the pictures that the New Testament paints for us is that we are we are free from bondage to sin, but our flesh is still waging war against yes. us. We're still fighting against yeah. sin, and so what God is is saying here is, hey, as 
part of being my distinct and, and holy set apart people yeah. is that when you sin, you make it right, mm-hmm. both with me mm-hmm. and with each other. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why in our upcoming focus study on spiritual discipline, shameless we're going to spend a week looking at confession. Yeah, that is a shameless plug there. <laughs> By the way, it starts March 3rd. Because as followers of Jesus, like we too should be people of confession because it's still the way that this cycle of sin is disrupted. And I know that it's difficult. And honestly, we need to say too that confession is often painful. It's painful to drag things into the light. But this is one of the realities that we see in the Gospels. You know, when John says that darkness has not overcome the light, or when Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, if you're in the middle of making an offering and you remember that you have something against your brother, leave your offering there and go and be reconciled. Like when he says that to the people, like to a Jewish person, that's mind bending because the offerings are so central. Yeah. But Jesus has said, hey, if you're in the middle of your offering and you remember, I have something against my brother, stop, leave it there and go and be reconciled. And all of this is pointing to the reality that like the intended effect behind the law from the very beginning was reconciliation. Mm. First with God and Mm. then with one another. So like just take note of that. Confession always has and always will be a vital part of the identity of God's people. So the second thing I wanted to look at in these early chapters is the priestly blessing in chapter six. And I think this is one that sort of gets overlooked a lot, but I would love it if we brought it back into our regular patterns of relationship today. Um, So God tells Aaron that when he blesses the people, do it this way. And I'll just, Mm -hmm. I'll read it real quick for us. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's in chapter six. It says, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. (laughs) There's a worship song. (laughs) Yeah. And man, I just think this is so beautiful. Like, can I, can I ask Charlie, like, what do you think about this? What significance do you think working something like this into our regular language would hold for us today? Peace. I, th- I just think it makes such a <laughs> <laughs> dude. I, it, it, I mean, I don't know why I had that. Like, this is weird, but LL Cool J popped into my head oh when my you said peace. peace. No, peace is something that I, I think we forget. We have to make room for peace to dwell in our midst. It does not dwell amidst. I don't want to be heretical when I say this, but like when I'm living chaotically <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm intentionally begging, or unintentionally, sure. And I'm begging God for peace. He shows me where I need to make room for it to be there. Uh, I, I contrast it with like joy in the midst of suffering and and, and being somber. Like that mm. certainly can exist amidst those things. But when I think of peace, I don't know. I have a harder time thinking about it living in harmony with the rest of my chaos. And, sure. And things well, in I, I think the language you're using there is really relevant. I mean, chaos and disorder, right? We've talked all about how God from the beginning has been kind of focused on bringing shape to that and shaping it. And I think that, you know, not to sound too preachy, like peace has a name. Peace is a person. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. And so even when you're thinking about like, okay, I need to, I need to remove something, right. That's causing Mm -hmm. this chaos. I think that a lot of times God is meeting most of us and saying, yes, remove that. 
but fill it with me. Make room for me. Yeah, yeah it's, it's exactly it, what it fill is. Fill it with me. Um, which I think, honestly, you could you could use that example um, for the people of Israel in this book all over the place. Yeah. Like they are just constantly struggling to make room for God. And like for me, when I hear this, and this may be a stretch, but this is just where my mind goes. I think of the Lord's Prayer mm-hmm. because like when Jesus is giving the disciple the Lord's Prayer, he, he's doing so because they asked him, hey, will you teach us to pray? Like, how do we do it? Which, you know, is a way deeper convo yeah. in and of itself. But he answers them with, with that. And I think that here, God is the one initiating it when he tells Aaron, when you bless the people, which is insinuating that he expects him to do so. Mm-hmm. This is how you do it. And all of the language in this blessing is centered around God himself. May God bless and protect. May God Mm -hmm. make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God look on you with favor and give you peace. And I I think in many ways, it's a reminder that these things that we so desperately want and need, like protection, grace, favor, peace, only come Come from from God himself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this reminder that we're totally dependent upon him for those things. And I think that for the people... It's a reminder that, that those things are available to them if they walk in obedience. If they remain faithful, then God is both able and willing to give them this blessing and everything that it holds within it. And so I think in the same way that Jesus gives the Lord prayer, expecting that we would be a people of prayer, I think that guy is giving this blessing to Aaron, expecting the priests to bless the people regularly. Mm-hmm. Which is why, again, I'd love for it to to work its way into our regular language of, you know, we're speaking a blessing over one another in prayer. It's it's an, it's a request, right? But I don't know. I just think it'd be really cool. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump a few chapters up and look at chapter nine. So you don't want to talk about chapter seven, where it's just I told you repetition of the same offerings over and over we again. We can't talk about everything, Charlie. I'm so sorry. I'd love to talk about the new rituals and whatnot. But in chapter nine, like here, here you have the people. They're all set up and they're ready to go. Their bags are packed and they look to God for direction. And what do they see? They see a cloud covering the tabernacle that appeared like fire from evening until morning. And I think that this is important. Um, we're actually going to be uh, hearing about it from the pulpit, which I think is great. Because any time that we see God revealing himself in some way, we should take note. Like, again, we've talked about how so much of what's happening in the law is God revealing his heart and his character to the people. And the primary thrust of the sacrifices in Leviticus is to restore and maintain relationship between God and his people. And now we're ready to go on this big journey through the wilderness, and God shows up as a cloud by day and a fire by night. And so I think there are just a few things we can note here. One, there's a lot of symbolism behind the cloud. Like, when you think of it, this would have been... This would have been quite a sight right? at the center of the camp. It would have been visible, I mean, to everybody who was mm-hmm. looking for it. So it's meant to be this ever-present reminder that God is still in their midst. If they look at the tabernacle and the cloud isn't there, something has gone horribly wrong. And I think, too, it's also a symbol of God's provision. Like when you think about how... You know, the cloud would be a source of shade during the hot days in the wilderness and the fire would have been a symbol of warmth and light during the night. I think, again, this is just another reminder and visual proof that God has provided the people and he's provided for them 
and he's showing them that he is still there. Yeah. Uh, I think the second thing that you can note here is that God uses the cloud as the way in, like, in which he communicates with the people that it's time to move camp. Mm. We, we get this really interesting picture of like how this journey through the wilderness is going to take place. And all of it is at the direction and initiation yeah. of God. When the cloud moved, the people moved. When the cloud stayed, the people stayed. And what's interesting is that it doesn't follow any sort of specific pattern. Like the text just says, whether it was two days, a month, or longer, the Israelites camped and they did not set out as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. So if you're an Israelite, Charlie, watching this cloud, what do you think that God is trying to teach the people with these like seemingly random movement patterns? Stay with him. Okay. Draw near. Okay. Do not separate yourself from God. All great things. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think the main point is that God is, God is the one leading the people, not the other way around. Yeah. They don't pack God up when they're ready to move. They pack themselves up when he's ready to move, which like when you compare that to the nations around them, which again, we, we want to do because we're holding on to this idea, right? That God has set Israel apart and how they do things. This would be pretty distinct. Like think of a pagan group, pagan group who, when they would travel, they would pack up all of their idols and carry them with them everywhere they, they decide go. to. Right. And you see the difference. Yeah. Yeah. One, like one is putting what you think will provide for you in a box so that you can pull it out whenever you need it. Yeah. And the other is following what you believe to be the source of life and wherever it tells you to go. Uh-huh. So I think this is, again, a callback to what we talked about in Leviticus when it comes to worship through manip- manipulation versus worship for the sake of worship. And so I just wanted to look at this because I think this is a major source of frustration for the people as they journey the test that's happening within this act of the cloud is, you know, will the people trust God to lead them where he said they were going? And I think that as we read, we'll see that they have a, you know, quite a hard time with that. But let's, let's let that segue us into this second section of the book, which again, you know, is all centered around this journey to what's called the wilderness of Paran. And again, the primary theme of this middle section is testing. And it's all couched within these sort of seven stories that are spread across the section. And they're all super unique and they're wild. And at some points, they're just straight up banana town. And we're not going to look at each one because that would be too much. It would be really fun, but it's too much. But like as you're reading through these, these stories, watch out for a few things. One, watch out for the ways that the people are complaining or they're just straight up rebelling. Like things get so wild at some points that the people just straight up start demanding a new leader. Like even Moses's own brother and sister at one point are just like, what is this yeah. guy doing? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, dude, it'd be your own family. Like, <laughs> they're the ones. Everybody got crazy. I know. And, <laughs> you know, after everything that they've just been through, like this is ridiculous. Like that they would be willing and so desperate to like, I don't know, find a new leader. But, you know, it also is a reminder that like when they when they demand a new leader, they're not just rejecting Moses as their leader, but they're rejecting God as well. And that's a theme that we'll see the people of Israel repeat as we go throughout the Bible. Um, a second thing I think you can look for in these sections is how God responds to these rebellions. 
And this, I think, is super important because like as tempting as it is just to look at Israel's failure as the main point of these stories, the more important thing to look for is how is God responding, which in this case is mercy. And I think that we, I think, I think we lock into those big moments of failure because all of us are aware of the ways in which that we fall short. But the bigger question that needs to be answered here is not, have we failed, but will God show mercy? Mm. That's the more important question because we've all failed, mm -hmm. but will God show mercy in the midst of our failure? And these stories are great examples of how, you know, God is in fact slow to anger and full of steadfast love and mercy. But we also see how God allows people to face the consequences of their sin. Sure. Like God can't just throw justice out the window. We've talked about that a lot, uh, especially in the Exodus. And so like we'll see beautiful moments of how God provides grace for the people placed right beside moments where he also allows them to face the consequences for their actions, which honestly, I think it goes to show us something about God. Like if someone or multiple someone's, wants to walk away from God, then he's going to allow them to do that. And that may be scary for a lot of us. Yeah. But it's part of what being in a covenant relationship looks like. Like God has shown time and time and time again, he's in it for the long haul in spite of the ways that the people fall short. But what he's looking for is, you know, people whose faith is pure, who know they aren't perfect, but who respond in repentance and reliance upon God's mercy, which he's happy to pour out. But if someone just says, hey, I don't want to do this, I'm out, then God allows it. Mm. A great example of this, like within this narrative, is Korah. Yeah. Korah, who's, uh, who, Korah is a literal priest. Like he is, he is a Levite. He gathers other Levites and decides to rebel, which, and I cannot put this lightly, is such a big deal. I mean, this man is literally... A priest. He's making offerings in the presence of God. And he reaches a point where he says, hey, you know what? I, I can do this better. And God allows him to do that. But God also allows him to face the consequences, which in his case is literally the ground opening up and swallowing him whole. But if you look at what he's saying in his big kind of I'm taking charge moment, you can see how backwards of a place he's actually gotten because he says, hey, everyone here is holy. You can't tell us we aren't holy. Who do you think you are to be in charge of us? And Moses does not respond as most of us would. Like I've got a few <laughs> uh, quick callbacks, like quick, like uh, what am I trying to say? Like bullets in the chamber that I would fire off pretty quick <laughs> yeah. at old Cora. But Moses doesn't do that. He just falls on his face and he says, well, let's just let God tell us who he wants to be in charge, which, you know, I kind of have this thought in the back of my head that Moses knows how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, obviously God chooses Moses. But think back to what Korah is saying. He's not interested in submitting to God's definition of holiness or who's in charge. Like he just declares everyone holy on his own. He's not submitting to God's definition of what is good and what is evil, but he's reaching out like Adam and Eve in a way to define it for himself. And so you can see in this moment that humanity, even humanity who is literally closest to God, is still fighting the battle of surrender to God's goodness. And it's this moment that should remind us, like even in the midst of all of these laws and whatnot that we're reading through, that we are still waiting for and still very much in need of 
the wounded victor that was promised in Genesis 3. Because even though we've made progress to this point where, like, where, where God is dwelling within the midst of his people, we're still so far from where we were. We still have a great need that needs to be met. Mm-hmm. And I'll note, too, that you know, for those of us who may feel like the consequences here for Korah are a bit steep, that you know, God holds the people that he chooses to higher standards. Israel's yeah. held to a high standard because they're God's people. But within Israel, the Levites are held to an even greater standard. And Korah, as a Levite, knew that. He knew what he was doing. And so did the 200 and some odd people who got behind him. So I, I think that the consequences, while maybe feeling a bit steep, are way more balanced than we think they are. Any comments or questions on that before we move on? Well, there was a section there in the beginning section specifically, kind of peeked out at me. It's in um, chapter nine specifically when, and I basically just want you to tell me if I'm reading this correctly. Um, It sounds as if God is making a way um, for people to be made clean um, specifically like when they're handling a corpse. And I visualize if that's them burying the dead, um, caring for those that have died and, you know, he's, they're naming off things and it, you may have just like flown right past it, but it's another instance, if anything, when they go to Moses and this they, is the like, moment where ask. like they say, Hey, if, if we're handling a corpse during Passover, yeah, why should that keep us from celebrating? Mm-hmm. Right. And most, this is, this is that one, that moment that I was saying, like they go to Moses and Moses says, uh, I don't know, let me let go me, ask let God me go check. and God gives him an answer. This is that moment of wisdom. Like yeah. Moses is turning to God for wisdom when there's not a like specific command for an, for a circumstance. Yeah. And so the call is to like as we're as we're following God be wise. Lean into wisdom. How do we do that? Scripture is is one of the main ways that we do that. Um, scripture says that we have been provided everything we need for a life of godliness, which means that there are there are answers to our questions within the word of God. And then the other side of that is God's spirit himself, which is, you know, because of Jesus dwelling inside the hearts of believers. That's yeah. how we lean into Us that Us and wisdom. others. Counsel. Yeah. yeah. It's a I good just question. Thought, yeah. I, I liked the through line that that's an example of how God makes a way. Yeah, absolutely. And he will do that on more than one occasion. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I know we just talked about Korah, but I want to actually go back like to the moment where Israel actually is approaching the edge of the land. And this is like the somewhat famous story where you know, Moses sends 12 spies into the land to, yeah. quote unquote, assess it. <laughs> and so they do. And when they come back, there's a mixed report, right? Two of them say, hey, this land is good. Look at this wonderful fruit that we found within it. And the other 10 say, this land is bad. There are giants and there are descendants of Nephilim. There is no way we're going in there. <laughs> and so here again, this is another callback to Genesis 3. God has already declared that the land is good. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, and one that he has prepared for the people to live in. And yet when they get there, Moses himself says, hey, go check out the land to see if it's good or bad. So not only are they forgetting what God has already said about the land, but they're again putting the power of deciding what's good and bad into their own hands. Mm. But the big moment here is how the people respond when they get this report. Like you would think, Charlie, that after everything that the people had been experiencing over the last year and some change, that they would laugh at the spies who were scared out of their minds. I mean, from the Exodus itself, like you can see that 
God is not phased by the strength that the world has to offer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we should expect the people to say, who cares about giants? Our God is Yahweh. Mm. And yet they don't. Say that again. They freak out. They get into a panic and they say, we aren't going in there. And what's poetic (laughs) is that like they make this decision while the spies are holding the very fruit that they took from the land, which again, I think he's a callback to what happened in Eden. But the people decide to trust the spies, not Yahweh. And what does God do? Well, naturally God says, I'm going to wipe them out. They're done. I'm going to step back, Moses. I'm going to start over with you and I'm going to take them out. Like this is the same thing that happened after the golden calf incident. And in the same way, Moses intercedes for the people and reminds God that his glory is on the line, which I just, I think it's hard for us to see what's happening there, but I think it's so powerful. Like he pleads with God to pardon them. And because God is full of mercy, he does. But again, mercy never comes through forsaking judgment. Like we have to remember that because that's also the gospel. There are consequences to sin. And within this story, the consequence is a period of 40 years, 40 years just wandering the desert that they literally just walked through. Like the wild part about this whole journey, do you know off the top of your head, Charlie, how long it should have taken them from reach to reach Sinai and, and the land? Well, when you look at the map, <laughs> common sense kind of right. makes it at least half the time. Well, like if you had to guess, how long of a journey do you think it was from Sinai to the, the land? Maybe if you're really trucking it between 10 and 20 days. 11 days. <laughs> it was supposed to take these buffoons 11 <laughs> days. And we get mad that our Amazon package is late. <laughs> right. This is, I mean, this is Israel prime right here. <laughs> two, two weeks. Like that's how long, that's how close the walk was. But because of the ways in which their rebellion just builds upon itself and it culminates in this massive lack of faith where they refuse to enter the land, God turns that 12, 11 and 12 days into 40 years. You know what detail I think is important to think of here and consider? You're an Israelite and this, you're mid 40 years. You're like 30 years into this mess. And mm. you, you like, you're probably blaming everybody but yourself. Sure. That you're not. Yeah. So like... You don't have the the wherewithal to know it's actually because of you that <laughs> you're here. Yeah. Yeah. And so like what God does is he he turns this into 40 years so that this, you know, the language that's used is this faithless generation who's refusing to go into the land would die in the wilderness instead of receiving the blessings that they were meant to inherit with the covenant. So they don't get to go in. Only their children get to go in. And though I, I think we could talk a lot more about that. I think it actually connects well with another story I want to look at, which is in Numbers 20. Now, I want to stress again that this, like, as you're reading, pay attention to the way that Moses and even sometimes Aaron are constantly interceding for the people. Yeah. Like, even though the people are constantly complaining or just trying to get rid of them in general, they still stand before the people and the Lord to try to keep them safe. I cannot stress enough how important this is because like ultimately Moses and Aaron, again, they're, they're presented as mediators, right? They help mediate this relationship between God and his people, but even they cannot mediate to a point where it keeps the people from dying as a result of their sin. The people are just too stubborn and hard hearted for that. And what this next story that we're going to look at shows us is that even Moses, 
right? The man who saw the glory of God to the point where his face literally shone with light and he had to wear a veil, which we never talked about, but it's super weird. <laughs> Even Moses is not the one who will make all things right. He's not the promised victor that we're looking for. Like we just called back to that. Like Moses in a lot of ways seems like he could be the one, right? I mean, if we're being honest, there's a good deal of doubt. I mean, Moses is sure. not perfect, but maybe God will do something with Moses and he'll turn the corner and he will end up being the one. And yet here we are in chapter 20. So the people are once again complaining. They have no water and they're saying, which this cracks me up, honestly. If only we had died like our brothers Dude, before yes. the Lord. Good Why please. did you bring us up out of Egypt into this place? And hey, this place isn't great like you said it'd be. There's no fruit. They literally saw the fruit from the promised land and they said, nope, there's tall people in there. I ain't going in. And now they're complaining about it. Like they're, they're seriously so stubborn as to say, oh, I wish I had been swallowed up by the earth. Then I wouldn't have to endure this thirst. Right. I mean, this is, this is why they I say they're, many things. this like, is why they're borderline insufferable. Like I'm just like, oh, but I need to remind myself. I am Israel. You are I am them, Israel. I am yeah, Israel. Yeah. I've done that so many times yeah. in my life. But anyways, like God gives Moses instructions, right? On what to do. And Moses doesn't do it. And this is the first time that we've seen Moses fail in a major way, I think, since like back before he left Egypt. And this is a big one, primarily because of the way that Moses just kind of takes matters into his own hand. And so God basically says, hey, Moses, the people are thirsty. Go to the rock, speak to it, and the water will come out. But Moses stands before the rock and says, must we bring water out for you? And then he hits the rock. So two things are happening here. Yeah, I here. noticed that. Moses is placing the power of providing for the people in his own hands rather than God. That's like when he says, must we bring water out for you? And so instead of using words like God commanded, Moses chooses to use force. And you know, oddly enough, it still works. Like the water still comes out. But the point is that here we have once again, this chosen one of God who's refusing to obey. And again, we've talked about how the levels of your responsibility impact the levels of consequences that you face when you fail. And Moses, as the leader of the people, had the biggest spotlight on him out of everyone. And so his consequence, like, it, it meets the deed. And his consequence ultimately is he's not allowed to enter the promised yeah. land. Which, like, if I'm being honest, like, my heart breaks for Moses here. I understand God's judgment and I think it makes sense, but out of everyone in Israel, Moses is the one for me who feels like he deserves to see the promised land and enjoy its benefits. I mean, he's the one who's labored for so long yeah. to lead these dealt with these people. These boneheaded people, and he's put up with their mess, and yet in one moment, all yeah. of it is lost. But I think we have to acknowledge that if if God just ignored this, then the people would have been way worse off for it. Like they needed to see that God takes obedience seriously, even with his chosen leaders. Because if Moses can get away with something, then why can't they, right? And, you know, honestly, this is one of those stories that makes a big connection to Jesus too, because, you know, we've made the connections between this wounded victor and Jesus and how ultimately Jesus is that victor. And the very idea that Jesus's victory was accomplished by being struck is what sets it apart. So when you look at the story, 
it was the strike against the rock that brought forth waters that gave the people life, right? And so when we're looking at Jesus, we can make the connection that it was by him being struck mm. and his blood being spilt that the waters living of eternal water. life, right, living water, were able to spring forward for those who would drink from it. Didn't water literally come out of him? Yeah, when he was... That's, yeah, yeah, that's a thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we discovered... That was like scientifically, there's like scientific evidence behind that. Yeah, I've read a few um, reports from literal doctors making yeah. comments on that. It's pretty compelling. Yeah. Um, but let's sh let's shift one to one more thing, and then we'll, we'll uh, look at some questions because I want to keep this a little shorter. Um, but the one of the big moments towards the sin that I want to look at comes when the people are on the plains of Moab. So what's happening is the king of Moab, right, he sees this large group of people, and he freaks out because he naturally thinks that, they're going to come. They're going to take over his kingdom. There's lots of battles fought in numbers. So I'm sure he's probably heard what's happening. So he goes out and he hires a sorcerer named Balaam. And Balaam is a bad dude. <laughs> like Balaam is actually referred to in Canaanite literature. But that's how well known he was. Oh, wow. So this is a bad dude. But the king of Moab hires Balaam to curse the people of Israel so that they wouldn't be a threat. Mm -hmm. And what happens is both beautiful and epic because... Like as Balaam sits atop this high mountain, he's looking down over the people of Israel. They have no idea that this is happening. And Balaam tries to curse Israel three times, but each time he can't do it. And instead what happens is he ends up blessing Israel because God is intervening. This is, the, this is that portion of the story where Balaam gets ticked off and hits his donkey and the donkey turns around and talks to him. Yes, got it, got it, got it. Super awesome. <laughs> That was like animal cruelty. Right. Well, but that's, that's a good point. Like that's, that's an element of that story. Yeah. Like the donkey's like, what have I ever done to you, dude? <laughs> yeah. I'm literally turning away from the angel of the Lord so you don't get struck down by a flaming sword. Yeah, I was trying to help you, bro. So like here we have this incredibly well-known sorcerer, right? Standing on top of a mountain trying to rain down curses on Israel. And God is protecting the people by turning those curses into blessing. And they, 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 they have no idea. And so not only are these curses turned into blessing, but there's a prophecy woven in there as well, which is super important. All of these attempted curses turn blessings. They, they lead to this place where Balaam says, a star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel. And do you remember, Charlie, what Jacob prophesied in his blessing over his kids at the end of Genesis, specifically related to oh, Judah? It was so long ago, Alec. It was. But when he talked to Judah, do you remember what, he, what was woven into Judah's blessing? Something about a scepter. That's right. Yeah. He says that when he's, when he's blessing Judah, he said that a king would come from Judah's line who would sit on the throne forever. Mm -hmm. And so here again, we have this uh, prophecy that a king is coming from Israel who will one day rule over all of the nations. And what I love about this is that this guy was hired to curse Israel. But if you remember all the way back again to the covenant that God makes with Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And so it's just another example of God keeping his covenant and protecting his people, even, even when they don't know that he's doing it. Yeah. Like this is all happening up on a mountain. Yeah. And the people are just down there going, I want water. I want water. Where's my quail? Where's my Give quail? Give me some of that rock water. Gosh. Okay, do you have any questions or thoughts on that before we move on? I mean, what questions can you not have when there's a talking donkey? But we're Fair going to continue. Okay, great. Um, that's all I want us to look at today. I know obviously there's a lot more, but I'm, I'm trusting that like as we're reading that if there are questions that you guys are going to send them in so that we can look at them more. But 
with that being said, let's look at some questions. We have gotten quite a few over the last bit. And again, we can't look at all of them, but I do my best. I've got some picked out here. Um, One of them is related to what we talked about earlier. And it says, how do I confess my sin? Is, Is there a right way? You want to take a stab at this first? Man, um, I mean, when I think of there being a right way, it it must involve bringing things into the light Mm -hmm. because that's where God is. Yeah. And involving him. And and I think of the term sacrifice now with everything we've read in Leviticus. But as far as like connecting Mm -hmm. those two things. You see how it's important, how it connects to everything. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do. I like, yeah. Yeah, I think. This is a big question, which again, this is why we're giving a whole week of a focus study to this. I think, I think when we ask, is there a right way? I don't think there's a specific form or, you know, uh, liturgical, whatever that confession needs to be done. I, I think the, the right quote unquote right way is with an authentic heart. It's, it's an acknowledgement. It, it's a the, the New Testament will use the phrase like we're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So we are, as sin emerges in our life, our the fruit that we're producing is that repentance. We're, mm-hmm. we're bringing it into the light. We're not letting it, you know, fester and grow and, you know, seeds so, uh, or sow seeds of like discord and, and disunity and all these things in our life. But we are actively searching for the ways in which sin is present. Yeah. And we're actively working to drag it up, to use your language, Charlie, onto the altar. Yeah. And to sacrifice it. And and that sacrifice for us today is, again, that pain of bringing it into the light, of making it known, of, mm-hmm. of pursuing reconciliation, though it's going to be see. awkward, though it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. In whatever way that looks like for you. Right. Does it, and doesn't repentance mean turn? Like to turn? Yeah, turning away from is, is one of the big ideas. Um, you're turning away from one thing towards another. Okay. And so, again, the idea is as as a people of repentance, we're acknowledging that, you know, Paul will use the language, like don't be conformed to the, the ignorance of your former days. Like mm-hmm. when you were enslaved to sin, you've been made alive. You now know that these things are not right. So don't don't turn back to them, turn away from them. So I think how the how, I think... I think there's a, I think there's wisdom again involved in how we do that. I think, um, like for instance, uh, if you've sinned against someone, uh, if you're on a, a staff or a team, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't necessarily stand up in a room full of all of them and say, <laughs> I have to confess I've sinned against Charlie. <laughs> like I, I pursue them one-on-one, pursue them, um, individually, because that's, I think the, I think there's more wisdom in doing yeah. it that way. Would you differentiate the two words of confession and repentance? Because to me, it's it seems as if one precedes the other. Like, to me, it seems as if yeah, confession I, brings us to repentance. Yes, I would agree. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Another question. Uh, this one says two things. Can you explain why God destroyed Aaron's sons? So let me let me look at that. I'm talking about that one first. So this is referring to Leviticus. I think it's chapter ten. Ten sixteen through twenty. Uh, yeah. Or no, that's, that's the second an, yeah. part of the question. I think it's in chapter ten somewhere in there. Um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Um, the basic premise of what's happening is it says that they offered strange incense before the Lord. Oh, yeah. Then the Lord's holy fire shot out from the Holy of Holies, <laughs> and they got barbecued, right? Yep. Swallowed um, by fire. So what's happening there is that, again, the idea is that if you bring something unholy into the presence of God, it is not safe for that thing. So Nadab and Abihu, they're doing something 
that God told them not to do or did not tell them to do. There's no real difference there. And Ooh, they, f- they face the consequences, mm-hmm. right? What's interesting is that if you look at what happens afterwards, like how Moses responds, Moses gives a new, not rule, but new like uh, descriptor of what it means to be a priest. And he says, you shall not get drunk, mm-hmm. which come, which seemingly comes out of nowhere, which for me connects me to the point that Nadab and Abihu were probably drunk. Probably drunk. And because they were not sober-minded, they were yeah. not thinking well, they did some, they, they whatever they did, they brought it into the presence of the Lord and they were consumed. Oops. It, it, it is an oops. But, you know, when you look at that, one of the harder things for me as a dad is that Aaron gets told, hey, you don't get to mourn because you're the yeah. high priest. Right. You have, right. you have responsibilities. Don't tear your clothes. Don't pour ashes on your head. You've got a job to do. So you can't go get your son's ashes because <laughs> uh, they were crispy. <laughs> you, you can't go do that. Um, and Too it's soon. it's difficult, like it really is. But uh, but that's that's what's happening there. The second part of this question is relating to a passage in Exodus, and that passage is uh, talking about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. There would need to be another podcast yeah. episode for us to get into this <laughs> um, in depth. Um, I have answered a few. I've answered this question to a few people offline, but. Uh, the reality is, is this is a this is a mysterious thing that's happening. There is a blend here of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Mm. But the reality is, is that God is the one that seems to initiate it, and He seems to do that because He says, "I am going to use Pharaoh and the judgment that I bring upon him to demonstrate who I am to the people." Remember, we talked about how the purpose of the Exodus was to show Israel, Egypt, the nations, and Pharaoh all who God is. And the narrative seems to tell us that God uses Pharaoh and the judgment that he brings upon him as the means to communicate that. And what's difficult for us in that, I think, is that it seems to go against or it seems to draw questions as far as like Pharaoh's freedom of will into the into the play. I think I live in a, in a world of both and in this narrative. Mm-hmm. I think that okay. it's both God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. I don't think that Pharaoh was ever going to let the people go anyways. Yeah. I think his mind was predetermined. And so I think that God's mind was also predetermined that God is going to keep that heart hard so that the the ultimate picture and the ultimate goal of what he's trying to accomplish is accomplished. He will um, get his glory. Yeah. Um, Paul uses Pharaoh as an example in Romans when he, um, you know, uses the phrase, who are we as the clay to question the potter's use? Can he not make one for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? And I think as humans with a a mind and intellect and a heart, that's really hard to stomach. But I think at its base level, it's a reminder that we are not the creator. And that's hard, and it requires a great deal of faith and surrender of our own will. But I think that that's what it means to live our lives as a living sacrifice, that a lot of times that we're, we're sacrificing our own will and our own yeah. des- desire or feeling of need to understand things. But that's not a very you know developed answer, but to try to do it quickly, that's, that's what I got for you. Um, okay, this other one says, it's a bit longer, but it says in Leviticus 11 through 14, um, I'm reading and reflecting, and I'm not. Sh- and I'm although I'm sure that the conditions, rules, and processes were laid out with extreme detail. Were there levels of punishment? For example, what if the skin disease is described were genetic, like today's autoimmunes? 
My Bible study likens uh, what's described in Leviticus as a form of psoriasis, which is somewhat genetic. So some of what's described is not brought about by carelessness. Rather, a person may have no control. In cases such as these, generations may suffer from the same ailment or condition. Would these conditions all be so severely dealt with? If so, how were they treated in general? Was there a stigma attached? Seems like the suffering and ostracizing continued until Jesus. Ooh. Ending part first. Yes, the ostracizing was a part of, especially in, you know, um, Jesus's lifetime. You can see the ways in which the outcast or um, these people were treated. And, and I don't ever think that was the intention. There is a separation, right? There's an uncleanness that is used to preserve the, the holiness of the camp and especially the tabernacle. But remember, just because something is called unclean does not mean that it was sinful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a huge thing we got to hold on to. Yeah. We hear unclean, and I think our modern brains go to Sin. sinful. That's sometimes the case. It's not always the case. And I think in this instance, you know, people, especially when they have no control, it, it's, not a, it's not saying you're sinful. There's still a way for you to be, um, to worship God. But all that, it, all that it's really saying is, hey, we're not, you're not going to live within the camp. You're not going to live close to the tabernacle. You're going to have a designated area for you. We're going to keep you separate. And then, you know, we'll figure it out. From is there. that the definition of being ostracized? Um, maybe. I don't know. What um, is the definition of ostracization? If I had to, to make it up off my negativity? head, I think it's, well, I think it's a forced separation based on something that is distinct about you. So like, yeah. If you're ostracized um, because of, you can be ostracized for what you believe. You can be ostracized for who you are. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can be pushed. Uh-huh. I think intentionally is the point of that. Then yeah, I think maybe the way to reconcile reconcile that is they were not being ostracized. They were not being set apart for the sake of something about them. They were being set apart for the sake of how holy God is. Yeah, yeah, and and I think too there's there's an element of um, you know I was reflecting on this this morning. Israel within Egypt, their immune systems would have been conditioned to handle a lot of the things Uh that are in Egypt. But as they're in the wilderness and as they're moving into this new nation, I think that the reality is their their bodies aren't prepared to handle different diseases and things. And and this is just me exploring the idea in my head. I don't really know where else I would you know point to this, but I think that all of it is to prepare them in some way. Yeah. Um, Which again, this is why you know the idea of hey, don't go intermarry between the Mm -hmm. nations because you're going to be let apart. That's different, but that's the idea. Like you're supposed to be distinct. Hmm. Um, Okay. Then we have a question. (laughs) This one is uh, again about Leviticus. I love the Leviticus questions. This (laughs) says, why is a woman unclean longer when she has a daughter and unclean for less time when she has a son. Is there any Jewish or scholarly writings on this? This is the most wild. Like, Go ahead, Charlie. Are you kidding me? Yeah, so I was asked this question this morning by my wife, and I told her, I said, baby, I have no idea. <laughs> Since doing some more research on it, the I think the best answer that I've found is that it has to do with circumcision. Oh. So when a, when a male is born, he's required to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so there's a, there's a shortened period of cleansing, so or like being... Uh, unclean so that that can happen but a woman or a, or a baby girl doesn't have to experience that so it's i think it's lengthened to provide extra time 
Um, I've also seen some answers. You know, there's there's something within the mystery of the fact that it's the woman who brings forth life that, um, you know, requires something. Again, this is, it starts to get way past my area of understanding. There's the reality of like when you have a baby, like you're, you're bleeding for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be a certain amount of time. It could be longer. I, I don't think this is a like um, written in stone. Like I think that maybe it could have been case by case. Again, there's the, the idea of wisdom with the law. But I, I think that the main emphasis between why a boy is considered unclean for shorter yeah. is, is the idea of circumcision. That's the main, the main thrust, I think. Well, the mom that, that bears the child, that births the child is the well, one Well, both unclean. of them are considered unclean. Cause I got you. When a baby is born, they're covered in blood. Sure. Yeah, so. yeah, that too. That's wild, though, to think. It is wild. About. Um, but that's that's the questions that we have for today, friends. Again, Ooh, we will some weird ones. We today. will continue to circle back. <laughs> um, we've got some good questions on God's glory that we'll try to get to next week. But uh, I want to try to keep this shorter because we've been going longer. So that's what we have for you today. We love you. We are here for you. Please let us know if you need anything, and we will see you next week. See you then.